You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. Labor Radio is an independent podcast, and it's sustained by our subscribers on Patreon. So if you enjoy the show, please become a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash laborwave. Based on your membership tier, you'll receive different sorts of gifts, including stickers, illustrated zines, and original made Labor Wave t-shirts. If you can't afford to support the show in monetary ways, you could still support us by following us on social media and SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts and give us a like and a review on whatever podcast app you listen to the show on because that really does help us reach new listeners. Laborwave Radio is now a podcast featured on the Channel Zero Network, which is an English language anarchist podcast network. So you should check out all the shows that are featured on Channel Zero Network at ChannelZeroNetwork.com. Speaking of Channel Zero Network, I had the great pleasure of getting to interview one of the hosts of a great show called Rebel Steps that is also part of that cohort, and we chatted and imagined ourselves as hotel workers at the illustrious White Lotus from the new HBO television show. So what you're about to hear is a fictional workplace organizing campaign, and we've been doing sort of a mini-series of these kinds of episodes. If you like what you hear and you got an idea for your own fictional workplace organizing campaign, send it my way at laborwavenews at gmail.com, or you can direct message me on Facebook or Twitter through the Laborwave podcast profile. With that, hope you enjoy the episode, and we try our best to release new episodes bi-weekly. So keep listening. Liz, welcome to Laborwave Radio. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. So excited to be here. Before we get started with this conversation, I do want to give a plug and shout out to your show, Rebel Steps. It is a wonderful podcast. So much like practical organizing advice and wisdom shared. How long have you been doing that show? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, uh, my sister and I started working on it in 2017, but we didn't release the first episodes till 2018. So a few years now. So folks listening, if you haven't encountered Rebel Steps, you really need to go check it out. They have a lot of great episodes on just like nuts and bolts of organizing, having good meetings, the importance. I remember one that I really liked was the importance of a good orientation, like a new group, union or otherwise. That one really resonated with me. When I first started organizing, I realized that like I was part of a staff for an existing union and our orientation was like so crucial for onboarding new workers. And we really didn't have like kind of a We had kind of a loose, somewhat uniform system for onboarding people, but we really had to put a lot of energy into that. So that episode was really useful. Oh, I'm happy to hear it. Yeah, I I actually really liked the orientation episode just because it's something so simple, but it's something that often gets overlooked. So I'm glad to hear that you liked it. Um, If you're listening to the show as it comes out, you may find that there's not a lot of recent episodes, but... I will say that a lot of our content is pretty evergreen. So if you see a topic you like, still check it out. We try and make it as applicable as possible to as many situations as possible. So just because it's a few months old doesn't mean it's out of date, hopefully. And on the subject of organizing, you and I have been talking about this idea you had for organizing a fictional workplace that has become kind of a recurring theme of the show is somewhat informal mini series of labor wave radio is we take a fictional workplace and imagine what would happen if the workers there organized a union at that place. And your proposal was to focus on the fictional hotel in the island of Hawaii from White Lotus. So I, that show was really good. I thought conflicting, you know, I had a lot of uh, mixed emotions when watching it. But I love the idea of the hotel workers in White Lotus organizing. 
So why don't you go ahead and give us a brief summary of the experiences of work there? Like, what are these staffers dealing with being hotel workers in White Lotus? And why is it necessary to organize there? Well, thanks for taking me up on this idea because I I got really excited about your fictional workplace series. Um, Part of the reason this spoke to me is I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't worked in a hotel, but I did work at a very fancy restaurant that was in a very fancy hotel. So I didn't work for the hotel, but I worked for the restaurant. And when I was watching this, I just, uh, I just like really felt a lot of those scenes um, where you have these like very intense interactions with guests who are just kind of on their own, their own planet. So um, just to summarize some of the many things that happen, well, one, you have guests who are very demanding, not only of like the resources of the resort, but also of people's like emotional support. So you have a few characters who are just really leaned on to like help guests through really challenging emotional situations. There's also a manager. Um, okay, we should just say also say spoiler alert, do not listen if you want to watch this and not know the ending. So I'm just trusting you all out there. I'm about to spoil it. <laughs> but the the manager who, uh, you know, is sort of the epicenter of a lot of the drama does engage in some sexual harassment of one of the employees. Um, and that's sort of an, a recurring theme. He also just sort of like uses his employees to get back at guests in ways that are really bizarre. And then the the employees are having to really bear the brunt of that. So those are like a few things that that stuck out to me. What were some of the things that that you thought about, like the the working conditions that they faced throughout the series? Well, one of the moments that I like the first episode was where it really clicked for me that I loved the show. Like I didn't even have to see the whole series before just being into it. And it was because the first episode, among other storylines that are happening, revolves around this new employee who on their first day of work is pregnant and is going into labor but has to pretend as if they are not going into labor throughout the whole episode so they can put on like a brave face, get through their orientation day and still, you know, make a buck while they're doing it. And if that just doesn't speak volumes about the lack of protection, the lack of agency these workers have, you know, the, the difficulties of these working conditions, you know, I don't know what else needs to be uttered to convince people uh, <laughs> that there's problems here. And then like you say, Armand, the manager, he's a character that I have conflicted views of because in some places I love him. He like he does kind of mess and fuck around with, you know, the hotel guests. Like he takes his own private revenge in certain scenarios. But then he goes to these extremes and he abuses his power. He knows that he is in this pecking order, that he is like in the middle of a hierarchy where he, I think at one moment in the show, I can't remember exactly how he says it, but he expresses it like, I get shit from the top and what they expect me to do is give shit to everybody else. And that's what this is, <laughs> you know, he's very conscious and very aware of the dynamic and kind of just pulls the veil off. So in some cases I love Armand, but in others, like you say, he's a, he's a boss. Yeah, absolutely. I think that first episode really sets the stage for how run over the employees are because you also have Armand explaining to our, um, you know, the kind of the protagonist of that episode, Lonnie, who's going through labor, he turns to her and is just like, you know, our, our goal is to be pleasant and interchangeable. You know, the guest doesn't even know what they want. We just sort of like give it to them and go away. And like, and I think also that sort of like interchangeability is something that's really key in hospitality. And he just like comes out and says that he's just like, yeah, it doesn't matter who you are. We're just kind of like in the background making all the magic happen. And then I think another thing that we should mention is that, you know, this is happening in Hawaii and there are some um, indigenous employees there who are asked to perform sort of like these cultural hotel extravaganzas. I don't know. I don't know if they're like actually the traditional performances. It seems like they're maybe sort of like Disney-fied for the hotel staff is what I would guess. And, um, you know, we find out that the place that the hotel was, was actually sort of like taken from some of these indigenous employees' families. And so there's also an element there where people are getting run over in like every possible way is what it feels like to me. You know, it's like, we're taking literally your like land. We're also making you perform this part of your cultural heritage as part of your job. At the same time, you're also like a bus boy. It's just like, they, like these employees are being asked to do everything. And it's just... It's, it's very hard to watch it sometimes in some of these like scenes that are really sort of just like aggressively, yeah, aggressively running over them. But at the same time, you're supposed to 
I think what the characters are inundated with and what you as the audience are inundated with is all this beauty, all this, you know, natural beauty, what a pristine environment. And so you're kind of like expected to just be grateful for the circumstance. Like you get to work on this beautiful hotel and this beautiful climate and, you know, every now and then watch a good show. Uh, so just be happy and grit your teeth and get through it. So that's the ideological level, I think, in addition to what you're saying, that is probably an obstacle to organizing. Mm -hmm. So let's set up this fictional campaign. Your suggestion was that in the world of the show, there's been this week-long, intense, just a series of events that happen that culminate in the death of Armand, the manager, who was stabbed to death by a guest who was probably the worst goddamn guest around, like the most spoiled brat. You know, you can imagine not intentionally stabbing Armand to death, but it happens everywhere anyway. So we wanted to imagine ourselves as two new employees at this hotel that had just started working there this week. And we had gone through all this stress that results in the week ending with Armand, our manager, being killed. Yeah. I also think that the other thing we really need to highlight is Kai, an employee that everyone likes. It seems like, seems like a very like likable person. He has been arrested because he's been somewhat entrapped, I would say, by a guest. That's, it was very, very bizarre. And, um, you know, so you basically have an employee being arrested and the manager who is at least a known entity. You know, I don't know about you, but in hospitality, when I was in hospitality, it's like, even if a manager is kind of bad, at least you want to like know how bad they are. Or something. So you just say it's, a, it's just a lot going on. You got you have like a very tumultuous week. Absolutely. Yeah. Everybody's had various levels of stress and negative experiences amongst the workforce. We lost one of our own to an arrest, another one to death. Now we have to get back to work. So where do we go from here? You and I are talking, things need to change. What's our first step? Great question. So where are we going to start this? I think we don't have access to a huge number of employees, unfortunately, throughout the show. So Kai, who's somebody we know, he's gone. Okay, we've got Dylan to work with. Dylan is somebody who was the subject of the sexual harassment. And then we also have Belinda, who is the spa manager. But it's unclear to me if she's like a manager in a way that she couldn't be in the union or if she's like a manager and she like orders things. It seems to me like Belinda, Belinda also had a really bad week. <laughs> she's really been taken advantage of by a guest and really kind of jerked around. If Belinda is somebody who could be in the union... It seems like she might be a good person to talk to because she seems to sort of really have like a kind of like nurturing relationship with other members of the staff. She seems to be kind of a natural leader. She seems like, you know, she's put together a business proposal. She wanted to start her own business and that didn't work out. So she sort of was like trying to go the route of like maybe like legitimately rising through the ranks at the hotel or of like starting her own business. And, you know, maybe after this week, she would be in a place where she would be like, I don't want to do this mm -hmm. now. That's one reading of it. I would love to hear your reading because then on the other hand, she was very close to Armand in some cases. So it could be that she's more like on the management side of things and is somebody that you wouldn't want to necessarily go to first. So I was kind of torn on who my first person would be <laughs> to, to, to yeah. chat with. What about you? Well, I do think uh, Belinda also came up for me as somebody to focus on because all the things you say, I think are right on. But I also think in addition, this past week, Belinda has had what we can assume is another experience where they came crashing into the reality that they are stuck in their situation because they lack capital. The bad week came as a result of, yeah, they put together this business plan, but also they had this rich guest who was dealing with her own personal problems, stringing her along with the idea that she would invest in Belinda's business plan. And that's what Belinda needs. Like Belinda has the skills, the experience, you know, the expertise, she knows the industry. She could be a successful uh, wellness center manager and owner, but she doesn't have the capital to make it happen. And so this, and like in the beginning of the show, you saw Belinda reluctantly become receptive to this rich white wet lady telling her, Hey, you're great. I'll give you some money to like get this going. You could tell that this has probably happened to her before. And it happened again and she allowed herself to get like excited and now she's disappointed again. And she knows she's stuck. Her friend, Armand has been killed. I think this could be like actually the optimum moment to really talk to Belinda and say, there's another solution. There's another plan. 
But also what you bring up, I think is important because I get this question a lot from workers trying to organize unions in that they don't know what makes somebody a supervisor or not for legal purposes. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to form a union and you want to go the roots of a formal election, like being sanctioned by the National Labor Relations Board, you'll have to create what's called a bargaining unit. And the bargaining unit is the people that are represented by the union. So the workers that are included in the union are the bargaining unit. And if you get a contract, that's who's covered by the contract, your bargaining unit. Now, the way that you create the bargaining unit is by a legal term, by uh, demonstrating a community of interest. So the community of interest is like these workers have enough shared working conditions and a community of interest that they all belong in the same union because reasonably they're dealing with the same circumstances. A supervisor is delineated typically or historically, it was pretty straightforward. Anybody that has hiring and firing power is considered a supervisor and supervisors do not have the same community of interest as the rest of the workforce. So that was what a supervisor is. But now it's become more broad and expansive, particularly after Donald Trump's presidency, the labor board really redefined what made somebody a supervisor. And so now it's like kind of clunky and unclear. And there are some scenarios where like a supervisor can be considered somebody that has the ability to discipline other workers or suggest that they are written up and that kind of level of influence in addition to hiring and firing power. So <laughs> that's always a question that comes up is like, who's in and who's out. And typically what I recommend is like, try to be as expansive and inclusive as possible and put the pressure on the boss to argue against people's inclusion in the union. You don't want Armand in the union because he clearly can hire and fire people. But Belinda, it's unclear. It's kind of a gray area. Like what is her status in this hierarchy? And I think for now, we should include her because like you say, she has influence and respect. Definitely. I think that's a great perspective. I know that also in some cases when you have a union, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but if you have a union that has voluntary recognition, you can sometimes get a little more leeway. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that this hotel is not going to give voluntary recognition, <laughs> but I still think, yeah, your analysis is, is spot on there. You know, and I think one thing we would have to look out for in this situation, just because of what you just described, is that like, if management decided that they wanted to go super aggressive, they could just promote Belinda. And just be like, you know what? Just kidding. We're going to give her hiring and firing power, which is also something you have to look out for when you're unionizing is that suddenly people who have never hired or fired anyone are being told, even if they don't do anything, that they can hire or fire somebody. So, you know, there's there's a few ways that they could try and weed Belinda out. But I, I think that that's a great strategy because I think that she would be a huge asset to the unionizing. And also she has not only would she be an asset, but she has a lot to gain from more worker protections. I think one of the things that I was really noticing when I was reviewing some of these episodes is that any boundary that a employee wanted to set against a guest, like any, like just to protect themselves would be considered like them being a bad employee, kind of, you know what I mean? Like there's a moment where Belinda's like, I don't know if I want to eat dinner with you basically, or like, I don't know if I can. She's just trying to set a little bit of a boundary. And, and then she's like, you know what? I guess my job is to just not have any boundaries here. So, so um, yeah, I, I would definitely be rooting for her to be part of the union if at all possible. Yeah, that was one thing that was unclear to me in the show is like, what are their hours of work? Like Belinda <laughs> seems to work nonstop. Like she has a dinner and that's part of her job, but she's also working in the morning. Like how many hours a day are these folks working? And are they like tied to the, like, where do they live? You know, like we know that Kai is an indigenous person, so we can assume to some degree that he has, you know, a home there. But like, are these other workers like almost like in a similar situation as tourists that they are like staying in the hotel or like have some kind of rental situation that's tied to the hotel? I really don't know. And also Kai, you see, is there in like the middle of the night. Again, very unclear if that's part of his job or just sort of hanging out. But yeah. And you also see the same workers are there every day. And I know that this is partly because it has to be the conceit of the show. But I'm just like, why are these people here literally in the middle of the night, in the morning, four or five days have gone by? We have not seen any change and shift. But again, that's sort of the, the conceit of the show. What do you think about Dylan, though? So moving on to like, Kind of one of the, the more main characters that is an employee. 
Yeah. So Dylan is kind of complicated, I suppose, and that we don't get a ton of insight into him directly, right? Like he's kind of a character in the periphery of Armand's eye because Armand is like lusting after him regularly and is very crude, but you don't totally know what motivates Dylan, but you do know that Dylan is approached by Armand, propositioned, given a lot of drugs, sexually harassed, like you say, but also participates to the extent that he can get something out of that relationship. So he wants like special perks and privileges. So he's willing to get himself into a situation where he has like a better like working conditions than his coworkers. So you know that he's clearly like cognizant of the fact that things aren't like perfect at this place, that he can benefit uh, if he, you know, has sex with Armand or allows him to have some kind of romantic relationship. But he's also getting special treatment at the same time from the manager. So, you know, I don't know. Like, he's kind of a wild card to, in my mind. He's got this direct experience with being harassed. He's got to be dissatisfied with the job even outside of that. And he's clearly, you know, a good worker because a lot of people, like, kind of gravitate towards him. Like, the guests and stuff seem to like him. So he's probably worth a shot talking to. I just don't really know beyond the experience with Marmon, what we would talk to him about. But that's probably a good enough issue. Is like, this happened to you. This guy was like creeping on you for a whole week. Uh, and it culminated in this really humiliating experience for Dylan and Armand. So what are you going to do to change it? <laughs> like, what if this, what if you get another manager that's like a predator and like lusting after you? Are you willing to go through this like terrible experience again? Or do you think there's a different option? Yeah, I think that that's spot on. I also sort of like got the sense that he was like a little bit just ambivalent and was like, well, I'm willing to take this route to get an easier situation. So it's sort of hard to think of him like buckling down and like doing some of the like organizing that I could easily imagine Belinda doing. But I might imagine since he seems to just sort of be like going with the flow a little bit. I could also imagine if there was like a friend of his or somebody who connected with him or maybe what happened to Kai or something. To sort of be like, oh, you know, like, yeah, you're my friend. Like, I could imagine him being part of the union for more of that reason of just like, well, you're my friend, you're making it easy to participate. And I just always kind of go with like, what, what's easiest, you know, something like that, maybe. He's probably a follower. Exactly, exactly. That's the, that's the too long to read. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I do think that bringing up Kai again, uh, just mentioning his name. One of the things I think we're going to need as new employees is some folks that have longer tenure here and that we can reasonably anticipate will stick out any type of organizing effort. Because again, while Dylan is a wild card for me, is like, I don't know why Dylan's even here. Like maybe Dylan's trying to break into some kind of entertainment industry or something. Maybe this is like a means to an end for Dylan and he's going to be gone next month. You know, he could be his own kind of worker tourist, I guess. But Kai, you know, Kai is tied to this hotel. You know, he's tied to the work. He's kind of stuck there in his own way. He's trying to engage in a lawsuit against the company for theft of his native lands. He's in jail, though. But there's got to be other people like Kai who are working there for similar circumstances. And I feel like that's the community of folks that we're probably going to need to really focus on organizing alongside because they're not the ones that are just going to be kind of leaping in and out of this workplace. Yeah, absolutely. Also, um, I think something we were chatting about before we started recording was just that there are actually a lot of hotels in general that are unionized. And in Hawaii in particular, there are a lot, even resorts, because I actually looked into this, like Unite Here has like a local five that includes many resorts, not just like the sort of like chain hotels that you think of. I didn't look at all of them. All right. I don't know if any of them are comparable to the illustrious White Lotus. Okay. But, <laughs> um, you know, they do exist. So I sort of, um, I was sort of like being like, damn, I would have loved to see a version of this, this TV show where there was like a union representative or something. Cause like, it's not like out of the realm of possibility that there would be one. And then also, as a, like part of the reason I'm bringing that up is that hopefully you would have hotel workers at this hotel who had experienced unionized labor somewhere else at some other resort. Or, I mean, just this is based on my experience with hospitality. If you're kind of in 
you know, the restaurant world, you know, everyone else who works in, in like, you know, restaurants in your neighborhood or something. So at the very least, I would just hope that like um, some of these hotel workers are like, oh, you know, what happened here to Dylan or, you know, what happened to Kai would never happen at my old place because our union rep wouldn't have like let that fly or something. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I, with Kai, it's like, yes, they they did catch him trying to actually steal. It just feels like he was very much set up by the guest. And still, I just feel like um, pretty much everyone in this, all the workers in the show would have benefited from having somebody there that they could just talk to. Because think about how different it would have gone if like early in that week, Armand starts acting erratic, doing strange things, like the whole boat ride with like the mom's ashes where like he sends his employees off to basically inflict revenge on granted the worst character in the in the show but still he's really putting his his employees on the front line there and and they don't even know that that's what's happening it's exactly. <laughs> exactly so just think about a world where they had a union rep where they could be like hey man something's wrong here something <laughs> something is not right <laughs> Yeah, it does bring up a scenario, though, that happens for me a lot when I'm talking to non-union workers on the East Coast. Uh, I live in the Northeast, and there's a lot of folks that like have been members of a union previously. And, you know, people that listen to the show, it's and I'm sure you as well, it's not a surprise that there are good unions and there are bad unions. <laughs> there are unions that locals that don't even try to represent or service their contracts or whatever. And for the members, the union is basically like a fee for service. So it's like just a thing that takes dues from me. I don't really see any connection to it. So what happens a lot uh, when I talk to folks is that they have been in a union and they've been in a union where they had a negative experience with the union <laughs> and it can be a disincentive for them to want to like participate in that. So this is just my, my little piece of advice here for any listeners that encounter this too. And for us as new hotel workers at the White Lotus is that in that scenario, it's best policy is to be honest and say, yeah, look, there's good unions and there's bad unions. And the big difference is when the workers are actively involved and really take ownership of the union. So if you were in a union before where you didn't have any like channels of participation and you kind of just allowed the rep to do the work for you, of course, that union was going to not service those contracts well, or not like really, you know, fight on your behalf because nobody's going to fight for you. We got to fight together. So you have an opportunity now to build this from the ground up, to build this as the union that it needs to be, that you want it to be. And your experience with how a bad union can form and like the characteristics of a bad union, it's going to be really necessary and important for us as we're building this union from scratch, because there's a lot of your coworkers that have no experience with unions and they don't know what to look out for. So we need your wisdom and your experience. Yeah, I think that's great advice and totally true. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely describing a best case scenario where a union rep comes down there and is like, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which happens too, right? I'm not trying to say they're all bad, but um, it's just if that comes up, if that comes up with any of the folks that we haven't talked to yet, in our first conversation, I think that's a good way of approaching it. Acknowledging what they say is true and that this is how we change it. Now, it does bring up the question for me is if there's other unionized hotels on this island, what do you think about approaching them? Or like, what is your opinion or perspective on should we try at first to just be totally independent and organize as many of our coworkers as possible and then make a judgment call later if we need the backing of a bigger union? Or should we? today, try to go talk to a rep from a different union and see how they can guide us? Oh, gosh, this is always this is a sticky question. And again, I feel like I'm very much out of my depth. I'm like thinking I'm like, if there are any uh, Hawaii hotel workers listening, please like write us and tell us what you would do, because I want to know. But uh, <laughs> I will say, um, I would say that if you can talk to a union rep, that would be helpful, because it's just honestly, a lot of work to organize. So if you can get more resources from anywhere ever, you should. So even if it's like somebody just printing things for you, like that's one other thing you don't have to do. You know, there's dangers in getting unions involved early on. So I don't want to diminish that. But what, what do you think, my fellow new uh, White Lotus employee? I, I think I largely agree that hey, if a union is going to give you resources and advice, take it. 
you know, if they're genuinely interested in seeing you organize and go forward, it's a good thing. You know, what I would want us to watch out for is just making sure that they're not too prescriptive, too directive. And particularly, this is, um, (laughs) this is me going on a little bit of a tangent, criticizing some of the fellow staffers I've encountered. If they give us a whole bunch of union authorization cards the first time we meet with them and say, go get all these cards signed, that's how easy it is. I say we throw those cards away and don't talk to that union uh, staffer anymore because that is a nonsense strategy. My current supervisor calls it a, a pickle bucket campaign. I, this is some weird old school thing because I don't know if anybody even goes around with pickle buckets anymore. But what he said is that you could tell when a campaign is badly organized is that they take a big pickle bucket, they empty it out and clean it out. And at the beginning of a shift, you see some union staffers standing outside the gates and they get every car coming in, every person coming in and they give them a union authorization card. And then they wait for the shift to be over and they're out there again. And as people are leaving, they put those cards in a big pickle bucket. It's a pickle bucket campaign. So we don't want any pickle bucket campaigns. Don't drop cards on day one. That's what I'm saying. So I think we should talk to that person and then see what they tell us. And if they give us those cards, throw them away uh, and, and try to be independent or maybe find a different union. For sure. How would you, if you're talking to other employees, you know, there's this sort of question of like, okay, we're going to get a new manager, right? So this is actually a little bit challenging because you can't be like, well, think about all these terrible things that happened because you're getting new management. What would you say to an employee who's like, well, let's just wait and see how the new management works out? Because I think that that's something that we might encounter as we start our journey. Yeah, I, well, I think we definitely will. And I think it's a tough question because that comes up a lot is people want to like wait and see, oh, the company said they're going to do this thing. Let's just wait and see how that pans out. And, you know, I think the best like one approach is to suggest like, you know, why do we need to wait? Like, what if they're worse? You know, things like that. But realistically, what we got to do is find out the issues because the issues are prior to the new manager. You know, whatever new manager is going to come around, they're not going to be able to resolve those issues. If somebody like Dylan has experienced sexual harassment on the workplace, has gone through it personally, that's already happened to Dylan. Like that's not going to be resolved just by some flicker of a new manager coming in. And that's the issue we need to focus on is like, what is our plan and strategy for ensuring that this never happens again? Also, what about the fact that you've already experienced sexual harassment and there's been no recourse for you? Like there's been no like retroactive resolution. You know, the company hasn't even talked to you about it. How are we going to deal with that? You know, so I, I think that always centering the issues that people have. Belinda has lots of issues. Dylan has issues. We know Kai is dealing with lots of issues. That's the way that we move forward and get beyond these ideas that like, oh, a new manager could be like an adjustment and improvement. Because at the end of the day, we also, one single manager doesn't have the power to change all the things that we need. Only we have the power to change all the things that we need. And we have to take that, those demands to the top of this company. So some new Armand, Armand already told us, he's just in the middle of the hierarchy. He can't solve all the problems. He gets shit from the top and he has to give everybody else shit. So they're just like some low-level manager that's just a grunt worker too. Yeah, no, that's spot on. One thing I was thinking, uh, just thinking about Kai again, uh, I think like one organizing method that you could use here is actually like creating sort of a defense committee for Kai. Maybe you wouldn't call it that. Maybe you would just, because defense committee to me just sounds very like a, you know, abolitionist organizing. You know, I'm always trying to like make things sound friendlier. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe everyone loves defense committees, but you could say like, oh, we want to create like a support committee for Kai. And then everyone gets there and you're like, you know, I don't know, doing bake sales to raise money for a legal fund or something. And then suddenly you're like talking about how like, hey, wouldn't it be great if we like organized in other ways? You know, maybe we could keep this from ever happening again or like, you know, things like that. One thing I was also thinking about is that with that, you know, the main thing that's pushing Kai forward is just this sort of They've lost the the land that the actual hotel is on. So all of the things that we're talking about are still just very half measures in like the world of of like actually getting justice for Kai or Kai's family or even most of the workers there, which is hard too. But it's it's a step, I guess, for workers to have more power in this place. 
Yeah, I mean, I think with like some immediate wins and small victories, it starts opening up the horizon for bigger victories. And I think that's the the challenge. You know, we're both uh, podcast included in the anarchist network of Channel Zero Network. And the anarchist in me is like, go for everything. <laughs> this is none, nothing is satisfactory until we win it all, right? But I have, I guess I'm getting old. I don't know. I've gotten to the point where I'm like, well, we need some like immediate victories today to start making it more possible to even expand the horizon of like possible victories we could accomplish. So I do think like in the immediate sense, like we got this one coworker that's struggling and the context for why they're struggling is they're the reason they like tried to steal this bracelet is like you said, they were kind of duped. I don't think intentionally, but like kind of set up to fail by this well-intentioned guest, but also they were trying to get money to pay for a lawsuit against the very employer that we're working for. So the context matters. So having this coworker struggling, needing like legal support now for himself, as well as for this bigger lawsuit, we should rally around that um, and start like showing that, Hey, if we have each other's backs, we can actually accomplish some things. What are some other issues that you think are like immediate, like low hanging fruit that's right there that we should try to organize around to change as soon as possible? Well, I think this shift question that we come that's come up a couple times is a good one. Like, why are people there apparently from early in the morning to late at night? Again, sort of just to make the show work, but still, that seems like a very easy thing to organize around. I think that there has to be a way to say uh, no to the guests for people. And, um, you know, this is just something that hits kind of close to home from, again, my background in uh, in fine dining. It's just like, People just have like their own ideas. Like I think Armand describes them as like a sensitive children who just want to be the special child of the hotel. And so there just needs to be a clear guideline of like, oh, you know, I get to go home at a certain time. I really can't help you with that. And that not be feeling like job threatening, for example, because it seems like just a lot of people feel pressure to kind of go 110% for the guest and uh, 100% should be fine. Yeah. And I mean, one of the, the simple solution to that could even just be have the workplace institute a policy across the board that people could just point to like, oh, it's against company policy for me to have dinner with you tonight. I would love to. So you give the employee the out. Uh, if it was up to me, sure. But I can't. I'll get fired. You know, it really does minimize the probable consequences of, I can't remember the character's name, but the character that constantly nagging Belinda to go out with her all the time. She could just point to the policy and really like have avoided a lot of stress. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, those are a couple of things that come to mind. What were you thinking about in terms of low hanging fruit? I guess the first episode comes back for me and that there should be the ability to give birth to your child without having to work. That I think is some low hanging fruit that like we could really rally around this issue this person should have been given the day off and it should have no consequences. They shouldn't have even been in the situation where they had to try to get through the day because they're in labor. So I really do think that one is just like abundantly stark. I don't know anybody that would be against that. I hope, you know, we, I'm sure we'll have some trolls and some reactionary coworkers, but even them, I think would probably be down with the idea that, yeah, if you're in labor, you probably don't need to be working today. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, part of the pressure she seems to feel is that it's her first day. So she's like, I want to perform. I want to be there on time. And you think like, oh, why couldn't she just call and like reschedule her training? That makes sense. I literally worked at a restaurant where somebody was like, oh, I can't come in for training. And I think it was because their dad like was very sick or passed away even. Like something very extreme is what they said. And then the, the manager just like was like, okay, well, I guess this isn't going to work out. And that was like their first day of training that they called out for. So you think like, oh, like that doesn't make any sense. No, actually, like that is in, in hospitality, it's just kind of ruthless. It's like, we don't care if you can't just show up, then like maybe this isn't going to work out. Yeah. So I totally agree there. Are there things in the show that you saw that like really were resonant with you and your experience in fine dining? Like any particular moments that you're like, this has happened to me? This is funny, but I actually loved the scene where Armand was like, that was my best dinner service. And there's like this music playing and all the seating because 
as much as like uh fine dining was like grueling i also kind of like loved parts of it and i could imagine myself being like that was the best dinner service <laughs> so that was like one thing um but i think just like the general attitude of the guest like the the worst guest the, the guy who ends up killing armand <laughs> he's just you know he has like nothing to worry about and so he worries about people trying to rule in his honeymoon you know and you definitely have things like that where you're like trying to you know, give somebody a really wonderful dinner experience and they just have decided that like you're not giving it to them. And you're like, no, I, I really am trying. And they'll just be like, no, you're like, what are you, what are, you're like hurting me. And it's just like, what are you talking about? Like <laughs> a lot of these fine dining menus, for example, they change a lot because they're like seasonal or the chef wants to try something different. And like I had somebody come in and just get so angry because the thing that they wanted wasn't on the menu. And I was like, well, we've made some changes. I'm happy to offer you any of these things. Here's something comparable. And they were like, this is ridiculous. I can't believe you can't make me the dish that I want. And I was just like, I'm ridiculous. That's, <laughs> I'm the one that's ridiculous. You are a full grown adult. You are having a temper tantrum in a restaurant. I don't know what to tell you. So, so I think that that's sort of like when you get to a certain level of wealth, it's just like people, it feels like they don't have things to worry about. And so they just like make things up. I don't know. It does bring up the question that I wanted to ask you about what should be our attitude and approach towards the guest in White Lotus as we're organizing, because there's it's a complicated dynamic, right? In a lot of ways, our leverage, I would think, is the guest, because if we stop working, I mean, this is pretty much our leverage in any scenario in, in workplace organizing. If we stop working, it directly impacts the ability of the guest to have their honeymoon, their morning experience, whatever it is. And there are a bunch of rich people that are going to put a lot of pressure on the employer itself to reconcile those problems. Of course, they'll probably blame us, you know, as the work employees and the quickest response the company might take is to get rid of everybody. So the guests and our, our labor is our leverage. And I guess I wonder, like, have you thought about what should be our approach to these guests, these guests that in a lot of ways, I loathe. And I, I used to work in restaurants too. And I have to admit, I, I hated everybody that I had to wait tables on. Like I was, I was not Sam Malone. I'm not being friends with anybody. I was like, I'm going to get you your goddamn French fries and ranch dressing as fast as possible. And I'm not going to talk to you. Uh, that was me. So I, I hate these people, <laughs> but that's not probably the best organizing strategy. So what should be our attitude and approach when it comes to the guest? Well, you know, I think any sort of complaint against the employees, if there's any sort of media or social media or way that the employees can give voice to like a, a narrative, I think it should really go back on the employer. It's like, well, it's not our fault that your honeymoon got canceled. It's the fault of the employer who made somebody give birth and allowed for someone to be sexually harassed and who also somehow like somebody died in the hotel, which like, keep in mind, no, none of the workers saw that firsthand. So we also only have the worst characters in the world or like the worst character in the, in the show <laughs> um, perspective on it. So, so like if you're somebody who doesn't really know what was going on, you also might just be like, wow, like I, I, our guests are murderers, you know? So anyway, all of this is just to say that it should really go back on the, the main company and be like, they have created unsafe working conditions, which I think you could say that in multiple ways. And so we are not working until that is resolved. That should really be the push. And any employees, because employees, you know that there's going to be some employees who are going to be like, but think of the honeymoons, you know, like the life-threatening uh, situation of not having the perfect honeymoon. There's some people who are going to say that, and you just have to remind them that, like, as the workers, you did not create the situation that, you know, prevented the honeymoon. It was the company that did this. And, you know, you get those sort of narratives all the time with, like, protests and things like that. It's like, I can't believe that these people who don't have a lot of power are, are doing this. And it's like, no, it's, it's not them. It's the, the company. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I also, you know, I've had like positive interactions with guests, but in general, I, I don't love them. So I'm just sort of like, you know what, this is a job that um, people should be safe in every way <laughs> while they're doing. So it, it just, it, while they're doing it. So yeah, I don't know. Those are those are a few thoughts. But yeah, I, I think just because it is a workplace, you can't be too antagonistic about the guest. But I would advocate for like a secret 
text loop or something with trusted comrades where you can make memes about the guests. I would say that that would be good. Like not everyone, but people who are like definitely fives or people who are definitely like have a little lefty in them, you know, like they don't maybe just even like Bernie Sanders level of left, you know, put them in a meme loop. Mm -hmm. That's, that's always a good idea. If you can trust everyone, you don't want those getting out, but yeah. So like having some like kind of instant access to catharsis could be helpful. This is what a worker that I've been, um, kind of helping support in one of their campaigns currently has talked a lot about is like when they get frustrated with the job and with the customers, they channel all of that frustration into secretly building their union, you know, <laughs> and having this kind of like private fuck you to the, both the customers and the boss. And I think it's great advice. You know, I don't know that that would work for everybody, but I think what you're saying is like have some outlets to get that immediate frustration out because we got to pay attention to the long term. You know, in the long, we don't want to do anything in the short term that's going to sabotage our ability to organize for the long term and have long term successes. So, what do you think? Do we have a shot here at White Lotus? Do what are our prospects? Like, how how confident do you feel that we can organize this union? Yeah, well, so when I was in in fine dining, I sort of regretted that I didn't actually get to do any organizing, but I sort of like felt it out at various points, like because I'd have other coworkers who were leftist, you know, as like a lot of hospitality people do. And I think one of the main things that I encountered when I would talk to people is that, you know, as in many parts of the American workforce, everyone conceived of themselves as being there temporarily. Um, and I would say that there are people who are like maybe still in hospitality that still are like, well, I'm going to get out really soon or something, um, you know, and this is from like a few years ago. So I think that that's probably one of the main things that's going to be really challenging, especially after having such a tumultuous week. Honestly, if somebody died in a hotel, doesn't matter how they died, I probably would just want to find a new job. <laughs> so I would say our, our chances are like, they don't seem like great, but it seems like a great time to start. You know what I mean? Like, this is a very weird situation. Again, we got, we've got somebody arrested. We've got somebody dead. Just a lot of drama. So... <laughs> So let's start, you know, we all, oh, and the new baby. We can't forget the new baby. We never find out Lonnie's baby's name, unfortunately, because Armand doesn't know it. But unfortunately, <laughs> we've got, we got a lot, life, death, incarceration. So let's start. Let's just see how it goes. And if it doesn't work out, we gave it our best shot. That would, that's where I, it's a little bit of a moonshot, I think is what I'm trying to say. It kind of reminds me of uh, the advice or not the advice, the, um, the position of Chomsky and the Chomsky versus Foucault debate, which is kind of a boring debate, to be honest. But Foucault is all like, oh, oppressive power keeps reconstituting itself no matter what. Then we just become the oppressors, blah, 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 blah. And Chomsky is like, yeah, okay, fine. But basically, you can sit on the fence and do nothing, or you can at least try. And uh, I think in that moment, I'm, that's a very crude summary. And I know people, I don't care if you like Foucault or like Chomsky more, whatever. I'm just saying in that moment, I agreed with Chomsky. Like we got to at least try. We don't know what the percentages of success are going to be, but we can guarantee that nothing will change and potentially get worse if we don't at least try to start organizing. One, one of my ethos of organizing is you have no idea what seeds you're planting. So you know what? You might not get a union at the White Lotus. You might not ever be able to like help Kai and his family, but maybe some of the people that you try and organize will like get interested in union organizing and a few years from now, try and union organize, or maybe, you know, people will get involved in Kai's case and his family's case. And like, maybe some people will be more involved there. So like, yeah, let, let's try it. And I mean, the, to, to oversimplify it all, it's just sort of like that meme that I've seen before. That's like, you know, people always talk about going into the past and changing one small thing that changes the whole, you know, future but people don't talk about doing that one small thing now. So let's just, you know, we're new workers. We just went through the whole rigmarole of getting a new job and it's bizarre. So let's just stay where we are, do a few little things and see how they pan out. Before I let you go, this kind of a change in subject and a different segment on the show. People sometimes write in and ask questions about workplace campaigns, organizing, just some basic advice stuff. And one of the recent questions I got, I'm going to paraphrase it, was person is trying to organize like an education committee, like more of a fun education committee internal to their existing union. And they're both having a tough time convincing the you know top union officials to put much energy and time into it. 
but also coming up with like a fun and accessible curriculum of materials to really kickstart that. So I'm wondering if you have any experience with like kind of reading groups or any of these similar themed ideas, if you have any advice for this person of like where they should start or what they should include. Yeah, absolutely. I I personally, I love reading and I love reading groups. I was part of a reading group for a few years called Anarchists Care About Books, uh, abbreviated ACAB. So um, I'm right there with you. I think it's important to do education too, um, since people are coming from a lot of different places. One of my main pieces of advice is to make sure that you're looping other people in as you're planning it. So I think that, you know, if you have like four or five texts or subjects or something that you're interested in exploring, you know, put out a a quick poll and just see like, you know, are people interested in reading about organizing or labor history or conflict resolution or I don't know, you know, just just see what people are into. And you're going to get way more participation in the long run if people feel like they're included from the get go. The second thing I would say is that a lot of times I see people do reading groups and they're like, we're starting with the longest book you've ever heard of. (laughs) And then everyone's like, no, no. Oh, I mean, I'm working, I'm organizing, you know, maybe I have a kid, I have to like cook dinner sometimes, you know, when I don't have leftovers or like, you know, just like people have their lives going on. And I think this really can't be stressed enough. We're all already working like 40 hours a week, at least just for a job. So if you're asking people to come to something extra, you have to make it accessible. So things that I recommend to do that are choosing articles to start out with until people kind of like, you know, get to know each other and maybe they want to commit to reading a full book together. So something that's a little shorter or choosing something that you can listen to. So something that's like an audiobook format or like as an option so that, you know, people can listen like while they're driving to work or, or, um, you know, or while they're cooking dinner or something. That's like another way to make it a little more accessible. And then if you do want to do something that's like a book or something you have to buy, you know, maybe asking for, for union funds or something to do that. Because again, it's just like, You want to just be careful what you're asking people to do. But again, I would just start with articles and I would start with like a little bit of democracy of just looping people in and seeing what they want to learn about. That would be that would be my advice. And then also, like, if you get it going, I would say make stickers that are like union book themed stickers. I mean, that's I just think stickers are cool. This is actually don't take that as advice. I just that's something that I think is cool. (laughs) Make it a club. (laughs) Yeah, make it a club. I just think stickers are cute, you know, like it gets some swag going. The reason companies do it is because it's like effective on some level, you know, I don't know. I think that's great advice. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, I I don't have anything to add. I think that's great advice. And so I just want to, you know, end this conversation, say that it was really fun. Thank you so much for proposing the idea of having a fictional organizing campaign in the world of White Lotus. If folks are listening and you have ideas for your own fictional workplace campaign, go ahead and send them my way at laborwavenews at gmail.com. Also, if you got a question about organizing, campaign advice, whatever it might be, and you want to just hear thoughts on the show, I can share them with the guest or express it myself, send them to the same place, laborwavenews at gmail.com. I'm happy to offer any opinions that I might have. Liz, thanks so much again for being on Laborwave. And One more time for folks, if you haven't listened to Rebel Steps, check it out as soon as you can. It is a great podcast with lots of great insights. Thanks again for having me.